chapter 5, verses 20 through 31. Jeremiah 5, 20 through 31. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Who have placed the sand and the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though it waves, though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men as a cage full of, is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper, and the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and their priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? As we look back over the history of Israel, we learn a lot of things. They did a lot of good things. They did some things that weren't so good. But what we know for sure is they started out in a proper relationship with God. They didn't start out in such a way that they would defy God at every corner, at every turn. They would be doing something that would be against God's wishes or God's commands. They weren't looking to defy God at every opportunity that they were given. They weren't looking to serve uh, pagan gods or false idols. They weren't looking to do that. But that is certainly how they ended their relationship with God. They ended their relationship with God doing the worst possible things they could do. For sure that's what they did. Now, here's something else we learned. They didn't get to that point overnight. It took 1,500 years. It took 1,500 years for them to get from point A to point B. From being a very faithful nation of God's people, striving to do exactly what God wanted them to do. Not a perfect people. Not someone who never made mistakes, but a people who did make mistakes, but a, but a people who strove to do what God wanted them to do. And a people who tried to overcome the mistakes that they made to a very godless people who didn't care about anything but themselves. And it happened little by little. And we understand that there is a path that will lead one to destruction and there is a path that will lead to eternal life and they chose that path that led to destruction. Now there are several paths that 
will lead to destruction. When Jesus made a statement found in Matthew 7, beginning with verse 13, He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Straight and narrow means restricted. It's restricted. It isn't impossible, but it is restricted. It has conditions set upon it. The broad way and the wide way is very easily accessed because there are many paths that enter in through that gate. There are sundry ways one can enter into that gate. We look through the denominational world and there are a multitude of paths. You don't even have to take one of those paths. You just take your own path, right? It doesn't even have to have a religious connotation to it. It just has to be one's own way. And that path will go through that gate as well. And as we look through the Bible, we find an array of examples of people making choices. Some have been the proper choices, but very difficult choices. And then we have examples of others who have taken what they thought were the easier choices, but the wrong choices. One account of a people making the right choice is one of my favorite examples of people making hard choices. And of course, that's found in Genesis 24, verses 1 through 8. We're not going to read that, but we recall that example of Abraham choosing his very faithful servant to go back to the homeland, making him take an oath that he'll go find a wife for him. Right? For some reason, it appears Abraham believes he's on his deathbed. He thinks he might die here pretty shortly and he wants him to go find a wife for his son Isaac. Go find a wife among my people. Swear to me, take an oath that you won't allow him to marry anyone from this land. Go back to my homeland. He says, well, what if I can't find a woman? Peradventure, I'm not able to find her. And if I do find her, what if she won't come back? Well, you just swear you'll go and try. And if if she won't come back, I'll release you from the oath. But you go and try to find a woman. And don't allow him to marry someone from here. So Abraham chose right. The servant chose right. And ultimately... Rebecca chose right. You remember that popular advertising slogan? I think of it every once in a while. Have it your way. You know, we live in a culture like that, don't we? We live in a culture that demands the freedom to choose precisely what we want, when we want it, how we want it, and as much as we want. That's what we want, right? You know, when I order a hamburger, I go through a drive-thru, I go sit down in a restaurant, I order a hamburger, I want it the way I want it. Now, the truth of the matter is, if it comes out another way, I can eat that too. I don't really have to have it that way. Now, I prefer it a certain way, but I can eat it the other way. Now, not everyone is that way though, right? Not everyone can do that. Some people have to have it a certain way. If it comes out with ketchup, boy, they got to send it back. If it's got a pickle on it or an onion on it or cheese on it or any number of things, they can't handle it. they got to send it back. Don't bring a tomato on it. See, I'm not really that way. I can just about eat it however they want to fix it. Now, pizza is another, another thing for me. You know, I can eat a pizza with just about anything on it except don't bring it with a mushroom. I can't eat fungus on my food. 
That's, a, that's kind of a deal breaker for me, that and anchovy. I don't really want that. But you know, some things are really insignificant in life except for the fungus thing. That's not really insignificant for me. But, but, but other things are really insignificant in life, but other choices can determine a course of a lifetime, right? Other choices are, are absolutely important. Now, last Sunday... We talked about what then shall I do with Jesus. That's an important question. That's a choice. This morning our sermon is what will we do in the end, meaning what choice will I make? What choice will I make? That's an important question. The account of Isaac and Rebekah is all about people making choices. Think about it. Wouldn't it have been infinitely easier for Abraham just to have chosen a wife for Isaac from among those people that he lived around? Surely, surely, among all those people, wouldn't there have been someone who was a decent person? Surely. Consider the servant for a moment. He had been given a job, a difficult job. You have to go all that way back, find a wife among a bunch of people you don't even know. You haven't been living around for years. If you ever did, I don't know. Maybe he did. Choose the perfect wife. And then there was Rebecca. She was asked to choose to leave her home, her family, everything she knew, travel to a distant country to marry a man she'd never met. Wow. That's a big choice. Choices, choices. We all make them. Abraham chose to obey God's directives that his family not marry into the pagan Canaanites. See, that's a big choice. We all ought to consider that. We've got children, we rear them up, we ought to help train them to not do that. Now, is it wrong? Is that sinful? Will you go to hell and lose yourself? No, but is it wise? Probably not. Can you overcome it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely you can overcome it. Can you, can you help convert someone to become a Christian who's not? Well, you better. That's what our jobs as Christians are is to do that. But see, we need to think about the wisest choices, right? The servant chose to accept a complicated challenge from his employer, trusting God to, to lead him to the right woman. Rebecca, she had to make a decision that would affect the rest of her life moving forward, and ultimately she chose, she chose to trust her life and future to the servant of a distant relative whose God was her God. This account, one of a divinely arranged marriage between Isaac and Rebekah, reminds us that nothing is too difficult for God. But what it really boils down to is trust and obey. I think those two words go together about as well as any two words can go together. Yet every day we face difficult situations that seem to have no easy remedy. What about this? trying to figure the right course of action and care for a sick child, perhaps moving our families to a different location from everything that is familiar, for a new opportunity, following God's lead even when the outcome is a little hazy, even when the right choice frightens us. But there are still choices that we need to make. We might even toss and turn throughout the night without finding peace in our choice. But the right choice is often the hard choice, but not always, but it can be. How do we determine the right choice? 
There's no easy answer, is there? We may not know until after we've made it. But here's what we do know. Let's obey the guidance found in God's Word. Let's seek wise counsel. Let's pray earnestly. And then let's trust in God with the outcome. Let's do our part and allow God to do His part. Will we have it our way or will we have it God's way? See, Israel could have learned from that, couldn't they? And then we go back to Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He was sent by God to warn his people to come home. Come back. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Listen to what I'm saying. Get your mind headed in the right direction. His pleas, his tears, and his great concern for Israel fill the pages of the book we know as Jeremiah and Lamentations. It's heartbreaking. Here's an example of a typical statement found in those books, Jeremiah 2.32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. That's a typical statement. Very sad and telling is God's statement found in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed them out cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The obvious problem is the people made the wrong choices by trying to direct their own steps. And that's what led Jeremiah to making this statement, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps, Jeremiah 10.23. But you know, humanity's history is full of poor choices made by those in leadership positions and those in not leadership positions that directly contradicts what God has already told us. History's full of that, right? The pattern of bad choices can be seen in our passage this morning. But it doesn't just apply to Israel of old. It applies to present day spiritual Israel. It applies to present day people in general in trying to bring his people back to the proper pathway then and now. God made first a declaration. That's our first point. The people to whom God was speaking and the people to whom he speaks today are the faithful. Now, he speaks to all people, but let's notice why he was speaking to the faithful and why he speaks to the faithful today. He wanted them to deliver his message of judgment. He was looking for those who still had the welfare of the people at heart. If the faithful don't care, who then does? Right? He wanted them to declare that the behavior that the people had been exhibiting by the unfaithful needed to change. If the good folks who care about what God stands for, about what God teaches, if they're not going to stand up and make a statement and encourage the people to repent, then who's going to do it? No one will, right? What does it mean to be faithful? You see, being faithful means to make the right choice. To be righteous means to be right in the sight of God. Even when being wrong might be easier in the eyes of everyone else. Paul commanded Timothy, he said, 2 Timothy 4 beginning with verse 2, 
Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having inching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. I think one of the problems with a lot of folks today is they get that verse and they want to get up and they begin to preach and all they want to do is reprove. And then someone grabs hold of that verse and they get up and they want to preach and all they want to do is rebuke. I don't think those are three separate sermons. I think if you need to reprove, reprove. I think if you need to rebuke, rebuke. We always need to be exhorted, right? I think that's all one sermon. Let's reprove, let's rebuke, but let's always exhort too. Right? Let's reprove, let's rebuke, and let's exhort, and let's do it with all long-suffering. And back it up with doctrine, by the way. Right? That's what Paul said. But what did he really mean by that statement? What does it mean to be instant? Be ready. Stand by. Be attentive to the opportunities, right? To preach the doctrine. If someone doesn't need to be rebuked or reproved, let's not do that, right? If they're being faithful... Exhort them to continue into more faithfulness. That's what he did to the Philippian brethren, right? They had no need to be reproved or rebuked. So he didn't do it. Now, do most people need a little rebuking and reproving from time to time? Absolutely. But be instant. Stand by. Be aware of the situation. That's what he's talking about. The Word, of course, is the Gospel. That's what guides our steps. Let's let's look at it. That's what we go by, not our feelings. Not our feelings. You know, people, I've heard this a thousand times, well, I wouldn't trade what I feel for a stack of Bibles this high. Well, that's not a good trade. That's not a good trade, right? I think it's sad when elders, preachers, and God's people trade or substitute the written Word for their own feelings and agenda, right? The faithful are instructed... See, there was need for rebuke here. There was need for reproving. And they were instructed to rebuke the foolish. That is the case, so they might be brought to their senses. Bring them back. That's the whole point, right? That's the whole point. God doesn't want someone rebuked or reproved just for rebuking and reproving's sake. Bring them back. Bring them back. Because we love them. God said His people had eyes. They couldn't see. They had ears. They couldn't hear. Let's shake them up. Let's get their attention. We want them to be saved. Right? That's the whole point. They couldn't see the wisdom in God's government. They could not hear His voice in His Word. Let's get their attention. Let's let them know that we love them. That's what Jeremiah was doing. Why do you think he was crying all the time? Why was he the weeping prophet? His heart was broken because they would not listen. They didn't fear the God who had set an impassable barrier to the mighty waves of the sea. God used the word me here to place emphasis on the fact they ought to fear Him. This is a godly fear. Not a tyrannical fear, but they should be fearing for their lives. He had the power to do that. Jeremiah had previously pointed out the people through their foolishness 
had brought upon themselves disasters because they refused to abide by God's commandments, Jeremiah 4, 18-22. He also showed how their refusal for correction would bring and had brought about punishment. The reason for God's declaration was because of the elimination of Him from the hearts and minds of the nation. That's our second point. He made the declaration because of His elimination. Well, God's not going to stand for that. He certainly wasn't going to stand for it with Israel. It was a different time. He was going to directly challenge that then. Now, He's not going to directly challenge it today, but He will challenge it in the end. We can eliminate Him all we want to, but we'll have to answer for it in the end, right? But that only happens when a callous heart rebels against God. Who eliminates God? Only the rebel does. Only the rebel does. Even though they had all the evidence of nature around them, they still did it. They still did it. They would not bend to His commandments because they were dull and destitute of understanding. When people decide to circumvent what God commands, He's going to ask a few questions. You recall when Job endured all the things that he endured? Job was misunderstanding some things. Job never sinned against God. Job never accused God of being uh, 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 unjust. He just simply said, well, God gives it and God can take it away. He said it's within God's right to do the things that He did. He just simply said, I haven't done anything wrong. But God is God. He has a right to do what He does. And He said that God did it. Okay, well, Job was wrong. Job was misunderstanding a few things, and so God questioned Job. And this is what God's going to do. He's going to question a few people. He said, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. When people try to circumvent the, uh, the commandments of God, when people in today's world, and we look in the denominational world, and someone says, Well, you don't have to obey the uh, gospel plan of salvation. All you have to do is believe on Jesus Believe He's the Son of God and you're saved immediately. And once you do that, you can never be lost. God will say, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when, when I put this whole thing together? If you have understanding of that, tell me. In essence, we might say, if you're so smart and you can come up with a plan of salvation, you tell me where you were when I created all of no answer to that. There's no answer to that, right? Or he may say, Who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? Have you seen those news reels when an earthquake off the coast of Japan or Indonesia happens and then this tsunami hits land? All of a sudden the water goes way out from the, from the beach and then here it comes back and it just floods everything and causes all this damage. You know, normally that doesn't happen because God said that He put up a barrier. The water just comes so far and it doesn't come any further. God put that there. God set that limit. So someone decides that they're going to make a church of their own and they say, look, we're going to have an instrument and we're going to play the piano or we're going to have a five-piece band and we're going to do all of this. And then we're going to stand in judgment one day 
And that person is going to stand before God and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did all these wonderful things. And we praised Your name. And He's going to say, where were You when I set the boundaries of the sea? We might say, if you're so smart that you're going to usurp my authority and you're going to tell me how I ought to be worshipped, where were you when I created all of this? You're so powerful that you're going to tell me how it ought to be done. Where were you when I set the boundaries of the sea? And then when you see the power of it coming onto dry land and destroying all things, where were you when I created it? No answer for that. No answer for that because they weren't there. Just like Job wasn't there. Now Job wasn't doing it out of a deceitful heart. He was just not understanding. Job wasn't a rebel. Israel was a rebellious people. And Jeremiah made the point, if the power of nature cannot rebel against the power of God, what makes these people think they can? What makes people today believe they can? But people have a stubborn and a rebellious heart, not allowing them to bow beneath the almighty hand of God. And because of that, Israel made the wrong choice. Israel was rebellious. But they became rebellious because they were reprobate. That's why they were rebellious. The people brought about the withdrawal of God's blessings because they eliminated Him from their lives. Jeremiah described the people as those who were wicked because they set snares for the faithful. They caught them as if they were catching birds. You see, that was the way some of them made a living. They would catch birds, they would set snares they would build these cages and they would put them out and and they would place domesticated birds on top of these cages to trick the wild birds right they would use something that appeared natural something that appeared to be what it was not to catch the unsuspecting wow that sounds familiar doesn't it that's the approach used in the spiritual realm just as Jeremiah pointed out. What's changed? Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And that's used in the spiritual realm. People are good at presenting themselves as honest and conscientious of God's commandments when in reality they're conscientious of their own desires and methods. Paul warned this, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. That is deceitful before God and humanity. And the guilty will be brought before the judgment of heaven. God said he would give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who did sin and who made Israel sin, 1 Kings 14, 6. The ones who committed sin would be held accountable. But the ones who caused them to sin would also be held accountable, Romans 1, 32. Because of his declaration, because of his elimination, God made a determination. That's our third and our final point. He would avenge his honor and his justice. And he asked this question. Shall I not punish them for these things? Says the Lord. Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? 
Of course He's going to avenge and punish the wicked. That's not even a topic of conversation, or at least it shouldn't be. What would make any group of people think otherwise, right? What makes someone believe out of God's message that He's just going to overlook that? Certainly God never led them to believe that out of their own wisdom that they would be saved, right? Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-21, about the wisdom of the world. What do they call wisdom? Really what they call wisdom is foolishness. They call God's wisdom foolishness, but He said, I'll save the world through foolishness. He's, being, he's using uh, irony there, right? That's not... He's making fun, or excuse me, sarcasm. He's making fun of what they're saying. He's showing the foolishness of their statement. He said, I'll save you through foolishness. Their wisdom isn't wisdom. That's the foolishness, right? When people believe their wisdom to be greater than God's, they have chosen foolishly. And their choices will be awarded accordingly. The actions of the wicked can be better understood if we define the Hebrew words used in the translation. The idea of the passage is that there were people in position to help, but not only did they refuse, they turned the disadvantage of someone else into their advantage financially, to their profit. Now this phrase here, they surpass the deeds of the wicked, is literally translated, they pass over deeds of evil. They did not plead the cause of God. Instead, they allowed sinfulness to continue. So what happens here? It appears that Jeremiah was confused by their behavior. And he asked, he said, Do the people really believe that God will overlook their sins? Jeremiah said those actions were astonishing. Not only is God going to avenge, I'm astonished at your behavior. I can't believe it that you will believe that you're going to get by with this. The leaders were appalling in their actions. It, was, it, it bordered on the ridiculous. And it, it showed how warped their perception was, right? The indictment of verse 31 places the responsibility at the feet of the religious, the leaders, right? Who allowed the departure to gain such traction. They should have stopped it immediately, right? Notice again what the phrase intend. And the priests rule by their own power. That can have various translations. The, the literal meaning is upon their hand. Perhaps the, the, the priests directed the sin of the priest, or the prophets directed the sin of the priest, or the, the priests recognized no authority higher than their own. It could have been either one of those. As sinful as the situation had become, it was still very popular among the people. That's the way they wanted it. Maybe the saddest question asked in this passage is, but what will you do in the end? Well, there's always an end. And judgment will always be rendered. I think the last statement that we read in our passage is, and my people love to have it so. In the context of Jeremiah, the people refused to repent. Therefore, an army from the north was going to come down. They were going to lay siege 
to Jerusalem. They had rejected God's counsel and God's wisdom. Spiritual Israel will suffer in the same way. Some of them will. All the outward sacrificial service will do no good for those who are determined to implement their standard of Christianity instead of God's. And we see it throughout the country. We've seen it when we've traveled. We've gone to places where we've had to get up and leave. And that's not good. The simple plea of God through Jeremiah was ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But the sad reply for physical Israel was, We will not walk therein. Jeremiah 6, 16. That was the challenge Israel faced, and that was their answer. What will our answer be? Will we walk in the old paths? Will we follow the teachings of God? What will we do in the end? What will our choice be? Our choice ought to be to follow after God. That's the only choice. That's something to always consider. If you haven't even answered the Lord's invitation this day, whether through initial obedience of faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living, or to come back through repentance, confession, and prayer, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.